Okay. If you have a Bible with you, please open to James chapter 2. So I've been taking a look at mercy. We've been doing this for, I think this is my seventh message on mercy. We had a break in Easter in the middle there, and then we had some guests last week, uh, missionaries from Rwanda. If you noticed, I like to speak topical messages. I like to find a topic and then just keep going through it until I run out of stuff. So I'm running out of stuff on mercy. Today will be my last message on mercy. We'll start something else next week. But I have been taking a closer look at the topic of mercy. I think that spiritually we're in changing seasons, a change from um, one spiritual season to another. And I think this new spiritual season is one of the earmarks of it is mercy, the mercy of God and how we would express mercy to one another. We looked at the redemptive gifts of the Spirit in Romans 12. Mercy is the seventh of the seven gifts listed there. We looked at mercy from the Beatitudes. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. And how mercy was expressed there. In this series, we took a look at Jesus' statement from Matthew 9.13 and Matthew 12.7. Twice, Jesus quotes the prophet Hosea to the Pharisees when he says to them, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then we looked at the source of that quote. We looked at Hosea, the prophet. And his life. I told you that there are some prophets who speak prophetic words, and then there are other prophets who live prophetic lives. Hosea, the call in his life was to live a prophetic message to his community. And how Hosea displayed mercy toward Goma, his wife. Just powerful, powerful stories. In my last message, we saw that mercy is manifested in many ways. It's redeeming love. In the Hosea story, it's the healing of the two blind men in Matthew 20. Freedom for the Canaanite woman, woman's demonized daughter in Matthew 15, the demonized boy in Matthew 17. Forgiveness in the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. If you'd like to do some personal Bible study, I recommend this. Do a study on mercy through Matthew's Gospel. I think there are nine separate occasions, I think it's nine, where Jesus addresses the topic of mercy. And I find this interesting. Anytime mercy was requested of Jesus, he extended mercy. There is no example that I've been able to find, no biblical example of Jesus refusing a request for mercy. That encourages me. I can tell you what, it's changed how I pray. Lord have mercy, has been on my lips, you know, quite often. So today I want to complete the series on mercy. And I want to take a look at one of the more famous biblical quotes on mercy. And then look at a biblical illustration of it. So if you're open to James 2, for the sake of context, I mean, I'm really interested in verse 13, but for the sake of context, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Excuse me. My brothers and sisters, believers 
in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but to the poor man you say, stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbors as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because freedom, excuse me, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Verse 13 ends this way. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So Lord, I thank you for your word, for the truth, and the power that's in your word. Lord, I pray that the full impact of your word would have its full impact on us. We ask this in Jesus' name. So, what law is James referring to in verse 12? Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. The law that gives freedom, what is that? It's the royal law, mentioned just a few verses later, uh, earlier in verse 8. This is the law that gives freedom. This is the royal law. Love your neighbors as yourselves. To be clear, James is not advocating that we live by religious laws. Verses 10 and 11 make it plain that we cannot be justified by Jewish law. Jewish law. He says, I'll repeat it. Verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you're a lawbreaker. So failure at one point in the Jewish law means that you're guilty of breaking all the Jewish law. Man, that's a harsh deal. That's tough, you know? I mean, even if you're experts at one part of it, you break one thing and you're guilty of all of it. That's not a law that brings freedom. That, this can't be that, right? Bible commentator James B. Adamson writes, The whole law must be kept if one will be justified by the law. One ancient rabbi taught, If a man 
performs all the commandments, save one, he is guilty of all. And each, to break one precept, is to defy God who commanded the whole. So James is clearly advocating something other than the Jewish law. I think this is what he's telling us. I think this is the royal law. The law that brings freedom is that we would be a people who live love. That we would live loved by God and that we would live loving one another. I think the rest of the chapter just bears that truth out very well. So some context. James, uh, this letter is written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, and he's writing it to Jewish Christians. The theme of the book is to live by faith, for faith without works is dead, he writes in James 2.6. Faith is meant to be lived out. Chapter 2 is a challenge to the early church to live out their faith with action. By faith, don't discriminate and show favoritism. By faith, don't insult the poor among you. By faith, fulfill the royal law of love. By faith, be merciful and not judgmental. So let's take a little closer look at verse 13. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, mercy triumphs over judgment. So there's much biblical support for this concept. We've looked at some of it. In the Beatitudes, the fifth Beatitude, be merciful, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That kind of supports that premise, doesn't it? The golden rule, do do unto others as you would have them do unto you, Luke 6, 31. Further on in Luke 6, Jesus is addressing things like judgment, forgiveness, and generosity. Listen to verses 37 and 38. He says, do not judge, and you'll not be judged. Do not condemn, and you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it'll be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use is the measure uh, will be used for you. Hmm. Now, I've heard those verses used often when taking up, you know, an offering, right? Pressed down, brother, shaking together, running over. Now, I don't know, there might be some application there, but it looks to me, he's talking about other things. He's talking about forgiveness. He's talking about judgment, right? And that the mercy we give is the measure of mercy that we'll receive. I, I could use all the mercy I could get, you know? I don't want to be one who's stingy with mercy, judgment's like a boomerang you you fling it out there (laughs) and it comes right back back at you have you noticed that the church doesn't have a really good reputation you look in from the world's perspective not just our church, I'm talking the whole church most people look at the church and and the the response is negative We we are judged harshly by the world I think more harshly than we deserve but we're certainly being judged and I can't help but wonder, is it, are we reaping what we sown? You know? Have we been judgmental for decades or longer? And as a result, that boomerang's coming around, and now we're being judged harshly. What if we tried something different? What if we picked up a boomerang called mercy, and we flung mercy out to people? Right? 
I know this keeps saying that, you know, blessed are the merciful, they'll receive mercy. Right? It'll come back to, I could use, I could really use mercy, pressed down, shaken together, running over into my lap. How about you? I think that'd be a good thing. So the, it says here at the end of verse 13 that mercy triumphs over judgment. So we've been focused on mercy. James says it succinctly. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Um, in the message, I like looking at different translations. The message takes that phrase and says, kind mercy wins over harsh judgment every time. The Amplified says, mercy, full of glad confidence, exalts victoriously over judgment. I don't know. Sounds good. The King James Version, got to love King James, right? Mercy rejoiceth. I can barely even say that. It rejoiceth over judgment. In Strong's Concordance, the word triumph uh, is translated as a verb meaning to glory against, to exalt over, to boast oneself uh, to the injury of a person or a thing. Or in other words, what it's saying is mercy just beats the snot out of judgment. That's what mercy does. It whoops judgment's butt every time. Mercy takes judgment to the back alley and leaves it there in a bloody heat. Mercy annihilates judgment. Mercy stands victoriously, triumphantly over its defeated foe of judgment. Man, that sounds like a powerful weapon. You know, if I was Batman and I had a utility belt, I want mercy on my utility belt. I'm just saying. One of my favorite commentators is a man by the name of David Guzik. I want to share with you some of uh, his insights on mercy triumphing over judgment. But he, he addresses it from the account of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Remember the woman's caught in adultery. They bring, bring her to Jesus and say, you know, she should be stoned for her, her act. Jesus kind of bends down. He's writing in the sand with his finger. Remember that account? Let me, let me read it to you. This is John chapter 8. It says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to, te- said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman caught in the act of adultery in the law, uh, is caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses com- commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus is cool, right? He just bends down, starts to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now 
and leave your life of sin. Man, those guys must have just been absolutely humiliated. That, oh, man, we got Jesus now. We just set this thing up. We got him between a rock and a hard place. He just whooped them. Right? This ongoing saga, the Jesus contending with the religious professionals of his day. They just keep button heads and re- repeatedly over the topic of mercy. Right? So in recent weeks, we looked at this, this, this confrontation, this ongoing confrontation over such weighty things as the guest list for dinner at Matthew's house, <laughs> how and when heads of grain are to be eaten, healing the sick on the Sabbath. They gave him a hassle for actually healing a sick person because it was the Sabbath. I mean, wouldn't they just, shouldn't they just do a happy dance? You know, This guy was sick and now he's healed, but they're giving him a hard time because of when he did it. Now, in order to win a theological argument against Jesus, they placed this woman's very life at stake. How wicked and evil is that? Right? This woman could be dead if the argument goes another way. A religious spirit is a dangerous thing. I think we've seen evidence of that in Boston this past week. Crazy. Throughout human history, it just is astonishing to me that throughout human history, it will kill people over theological differences. Right? I mean, Christians are no better than some of the jihadists today. We're just, they're just 500 years behind us. Because 500 years ago, we would cut heads off because of theological differences. We would burn people alive because of theological differences. So I ain't throwing stones at them. I'm just saying, man, mercy triumphs over judgment. Love never fails. We're missing the weightier points of this. And these guys are just an example of it. They're willing to put this poor woman's life at risk to win a theological argument against Jesus. How ridiculous is that? It makes me wonder how many times I've sacrificed other things like friendship or relationships over, over foolish differences of opinion. Wouldn't it be better if I'd loved in the long term? Oh, Lord have mercy. These wretched men were using this woman as a weapon against Jesus. It's frightening but true. A religious spirit knows no bounds. Not even murder. Mercy is the mortal enemy of a religious spirit. Verse 4 in the New American Standard says that the woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Hmm. So it makes me wonder was this entrapment? You know, were they looking in the window? And by the way, where the heck is the man? Right? She wouldn't do this by herself. Right? If she's caught in the very act of adultery, there's, there's somebody else involved in this. Where's she? Where is he? This is a setup. They were setting a trap for Jesus. If Jesus says, let her go, then he seems to be breaking the Mosaic law. If he says, execute her for the crime of adultery, then Jesus seems harsh, and he breaks Roman law. See, the Romans had taken away the rights of the Jews to officially execute people for religious offenses. They didn't have the right to do that. So they're trying to put Jesus between a rock and a hard place. You know, though it is true that adultery was a capital offense under Jewish law, the rules for evidence in capital cases was extremely strict. The actual act had to be observed by multiple witnesses who agreed exactly on their testimony. It just makes these guys sound creepier and creepier. You know what I'm saying? A bunch of perverts. You got it right, Barry. 
Not good. So as a practical matter, virtually no one was executed for adultery because, well, it's usually a pretty private sin. This is an obvious setup. The claim that the woman was caught in adultery in the very act, yet they do not bring the guilty man before Jesus. Is it possible that the man was a member of their group? I'm speculating. Scripture doesn't say. But I don't know. It would seem to fit. Right? If he was a member of their group, maybe they don't bring him before her. If he's not a member of the group, well, then stone them both. Right? They got two people they could put between a rock and a hard place. You know, and it wasn't beyond them to set up false witnesses either. Because they that's exactly what they did a little bit later on in Matthew 26. They, they were happy finding false witnesses to bolster their case. It's interesting how they so clearly see the sin of others, but remain blind to their own sin. Another really good indicator of a religious spirit. Jesus ignores them. You know, he never actually responds to them. He never answers their question. He ignores them as if he hadn't even heard them. Why did Jesus ignore them? Different commentators have different opinions. Some think it's because he despised them. Others say he was embarrassed for the woman's sake. Still others say that he was horrified at what these men did to this poor woman. And there's been lots of theological speculation over the years. What did Jesus write with his finger you know, in the sand? No one knows for certain. Maybe it was a list of their names and their sins. That might have gotten their attention. Right? Maybe he just doodled. I don't know. Maybe he was following uh, the Roman judicial practice of, and wrote out the sentence before it was pronounced. That was common. Maybe he wrote out a scripture text like Exodus 23.1 where it says, Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. That would have been a cool thing to write. Finally, Jesus passed his sentence upon the woman and her accusers. In Jewish law, witnesses to the capital offense, that was the one. If you were the witness, then you were the one who began the stoning. You would be the one to cast the first stone. So when Jesus said, who among you is without sin, let him cast the first stone, he was actually saying, all right, let's execute it, but let's do it right. One of the witnesses has to be uh, has to have a hand in her execution. So who among you is the one who witnessed this crime but only brought me the, the woman and not the man? I think we can fairly say that that's what he was implying. Jesus makes it plain. Whoever the witness is, whoever the one who has the right to cast the first stone, he is guilty. He is as guilty as this woman taken in the act of adultery. Why? For his hypocrisy. Verse 9 tells us in this account that they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest. Why did they leave in this order? Perhaps the oldest left first because they most easily understood that Jesus was talking about them. Others think that Jesus was writing on the ground an account of their own sins, beginning with the oldest to the youngest. 
And this explains the order of their departure. Nobody really knows. But this is clear. This is absolutely clear. Jesus extends mercy. Unequivocally. He extends mercy. He says to this, this humiliated woman, this broken woman, this woman who's made some very bad choices in life, and now is publicly humiliated for it, near death, her life hangs in the balance. Jesus says to her, has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Wow, what powerful words to hear under those circumstances. With the accusers gone and no one left to condemn the woman, and Jesus himself did not condemn her. In this case, I can't help but be reminded of Romans 8, chapter 1. It says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He didn't condemn this woman. Some commentators, I love to read commentators, but sometimes they just annoy me. They, they argue over what I think is some foolishness. Some are trying to debate whether or not Jesus actually forgave this woman. It's a pointless argument. <laughs> Jesus certainly showed the woman mercy. And he called her to repentance. Go and sin no more. Right? Obviously not condoning sexual immorality. The main point is that mercy triumphs over judgment. Religious judgment set this woman up. Religious judgment used her and publicly humiliated her. Religious judgment tried to trap Jesus as it entrapped this woman. And religious judgment was soundly defeated <laughs> by mercy personified in the body of Jesus Christ. Judgment condemns. Mercy sets us free. Judgment condemns. And mercy sets you free. So listen to me. Have you been judged? I bet there's not a person in this room who can say they haven't been. Have you judged yourself? Are you in need of mercy? Do you need mercy today? Let me end with one last scripture. This is from Ephesians chapter 2. It's out of the message. I love the way Peterson puts this in the message. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, he says, It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in the old stagnant life of sin. You let, you let the world, which does not know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it, all of us, doing what we felt like doing, when we felt like doing it, and all of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God doesn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. I can identify with that. <laughs> I'm in that boat. I've been in that boat. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the last thing Paul said. He says this, instead, instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did it all. He did all this on his own with no help from us. And he picked us up and set us down in the highest heaven 
in company with Jesus, our Messiah. Let me read that one part again. Immense in mercy. And with an incredible love, he embraced us. Immense in mercy. And with an incredible love, he embraced us. The New International Verse says that God is rich in mercy. You know what? There's no shortage of mercy on God's end. And he does not dole it out sparingly. He's not stingy with mercy. Scripture says he's immense in mercy. That he's rich in mercy. And that mercy is available to you right now, today. So let's pray. Would you guys mind closing your eyes? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Lord, as I just as I read through John today, the woman, the, the account of that woman caught in adultery. Sometimes I feel just like her. Part of me, part of I'm falsely accused, part I'm just guilty, Lord. Either way, I'm in a bad place. And I can't help myself. And I need your mercy. Lord, I can just feel today in the spirit that there's a bunch of people here who've been, they've been judged harshly. Some for the things they did, some for things they haven't done. Lord, I ask that you would come by the power of your spirit and that you would trade out judgment and replace it with mercy. Would you do what only you can do? I, I, I can't make this happen, but you can. Holy Spirit, would you come? And I pray especially for those who've received the harshest judgments. Would you go deep into their heart, to that most painful place? And would you sovereignly extract judgment? And in that void, would you pour in mercy? I ask today that you would pour out mercy on my friends and truly... Let it be pressed down. Let it be shaken together. Let it be bubbling over in all of us. Do it. Lord, I don't think we've, we have tasted enough of your mercy. I pray that in this mercy season, that we would drink of mercy, that we would be <laughs> submersed in the immenseness of your mercy. I ask, Lord, that you would, in your great generosity, that you would dole out mercy to us for we need it. Do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray that in this you would heal broken relationships. Lord, I pray that you would break yokes off of people. And the spirit, it feels like there's some, because of judgment, it's been like having heavy weights on your shoulder and just keeping you, keeping you down. Lord, I ask that you would break 
that yoke of oppression and that there would be freedom. I pray that the fruit of mercy being poured into our lives would be freedom. And we would live in the fullness of the freedom that you won for us on Calvary. That we would know the truth of how you see us. Guilty or not guilty. Like this poor woman being exploited by these evil religious men. Lord, I pray that you would set us free by your word over us. Your your words to us. Neither do I condemn you. Set us free, O oh God. Thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Lord, would you today, would you just hit, hit the reset button for us? There'd be a fresh start. A new beginning. I ask that, Lord. A new beginning. A new beginning mocked by, identified by mercy. Make it so, God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. I love you guys. we got lots of stuff going on this week. Please um, uh, take, partake of what has life on it for you. And we'll see you next Sunday.